Welcome to the Insurance Law Podcast, brought to you by Best Directory of Recommended Insurance Attorneys. Welcome to the Insurance Law Podcast, the broadcast about timely and important legal issues affecting the insurance industry. I'm John Zuba, editor of Best's Directory of Recommended Insurance Attorneys. Joining me is Brendan Noonan from our communications team. We're pleased to have with us this morning attorney Al Goldberger from the Goldberger & Goldberger Law Firm in Clifton, New Jersey. Al is a nationally recognized authority on sports law and sports officiating. He is frequently retained by insurance claims administrators to defend sports officials, coaches, camps, officials associations, and other sports industry insureds. Al is here this morning to discuss a recent case in Texas involving Midwest Employers Casualty Company and high school football officials and its impact on the industry. Brandon Noonan leads off today with our first question. Al, can you provide some background on this case? Yes, good morning, Brandon. This case arises out of a high school football game played at Alamo Stadium in San Antonio, Texas, at which time an assistant coach named Terry English suffered a catastrophic injury when he took a few steps, clipboard in hand, into a six-foot-wide restricted area between his team's bench area and the sideline of the football field. As the play developed, it was a punt return. One of the officials, named Charles Harpole, who was the head linesman working the game, was running along the sideline at a rapid rate of speed, as referees are wont to do. Unfortunately, when Coach English stepped from the team personnel bench area up closer to the sideline, he stepped into a restricted area and stepped right in front of the official, Mr. Harpole. The two men collided. Both were knocked unconscious. Mr. Harpole, the official, regained consciousness, but he was unable to finish uh, the game from the officiating point of view, had to leave. Coach English didn't fare so well. He suffered a level three brain injury as a result of the collision. He was rendered permanently disabled. He was unable to return to his teaching duties. He sustained extraordinary medical expenses. Two years later, the day before the statute of limitation was to run, the workers' compensation carrier responsible for Mr. English's medicals brought suit by way of subrogation against Mr. Harpole and the four other officials who worked that particular game. And also included in the suit was the Texas Association of Sports Officials. The carrier, Midwest Employers Casualty, alleged that Mr. Harpole, the official, was, quote, running at full speed without looking where he was going. And therefore, he was guilty of negligence, and that the four other officials on the field at the time of the accident were also negligent because, as a group, they allowed coaches to stand in the area restricted to the use of the officials. The lawsuit also alleged that the Texas Association of Sports Officials was liable for the conduct of the officials. As you might expect, there was a counterclaim for abuse of process uh, pleaded on behalf of the five officials. Several defense motions and about 14 depositions later, the five referees moved for summary judgment, dismissing Midwest casualties suit. That motion was granted. Midwest retained new local counsel, moved for reconsideration, motion denied, and the claims against the officials association were severed, as was the counterclaim, which set the stage for appellate review by the Fourth Court of Appeals in San Antonio, Texas. At the request of the plaintiff, our office appeared representing the National Association of Sports Officials and filed an amicus brief on behalf of the officials. In that brief, the association emphasized to the court that at the time of this collision, the official involved, Mr. Harpole, 
was doing exactly what he should have been doing, that is running down the sideline, following the play to officiate the game, so that in reality there was no legal duty that existed and, and none could have been violated. This past June, the appellate panel issued an opinion holding there was no duty owed by game officials to avoid colliding with sideline personnel under these circumstances. And the court said the fact that Harpole was where he was supposed to be, doing exactly what his job required, really carried the day here. And that basically is the Midwest Employers Casualty Company uh, case as it stands now. Okay. Um, how will this case impact sports on a state and national level? Well, Brendan, I think that the case reinforces the proposition that referees and umpires are entitled to discharge their responsibilities without fear of frivolous lawsuits of the kind brought by the plaintiff here. And secondly, game officials are not required under any negligence principles to ensure the safety of anyone. Lastly, I would say there is an inherent risk factor attendant to placing oneself in the environs of the playing surface contiguous to a sideline or a boundary in any sporting event, even though the person who elects to do that may not be on the playing field per se in terms of being inbounds. There is still a risk, and we still have people bringing claims, and we still have claims being dismissed in that regard. Al, do court decisions at the high school level impact college, amateur, and pro athletics at all? John, I would say that court decisions at any level potentially impact sports at other levels, depending on the nature of the claim and the circumstances of the loss. Recognizing that the goals of uh, interscholastic athletics, no pun intended there, but the goals of interscholastic athletics do not always coincide with the goals of pro and intercollegiate athletics, there are going to be rules differences. Those rules that relate to participant safety, and there are plenty of them, may impact on a court's decision, as would any standard of care that is derived from the nature of the activity and the proclivities of the participants. So that a court hearing sports injury case may well be inclined to consider the eggshell of the little leaguer in a different light than when the plaintiff is a professional athlete or a Division One college athlete. Uh, Al, in general, how is the landscape changing in sports law? Well, Brendan, we've witnessed in the last two decades or so a proliferation of codified law in any number of substantive areas, uh, including federal and state volunteer immunity legislation, immunity legislation for coaches and certain officials. In the administrative area, we have mandated criminal background checks for coaches, officials, and volunteers statutorily authorized athletic code of conduct in New Jersey enables municipalities and school boards and nonprofit recreation departments to enact actual codes of conduct providing for sanctions against spectators and other participants, players, coaches, and so forth, if that, those codes are not followed. We have athletic trainer licensing. In criminal law, we have statutes providing for enhanced criminal penalties for assaults on officials and coaches in many states. We have anti-hazing legislation, penal sanctions for those disrupting sporting events. Um, Al, what do insurers specifically need to be aware of, and how has this changed and evolved in recent years? And also, how does the defense of a sports injury case vary from other negligence cases like automobile or premises liability? Well, John, realizing that we have a, a relatively expansive body of codified law in addition to case law, 
insurers need to be sensitive to both standards of care established by codified law and the flip side of that, the viability of statutory immunities that may be available to defend these cases. These statutes and case law precedents may operate to bring about a different result, sometimes at the motion stage for defendants, and that has a bearing on, on many cases in the defense of bodily injury claims. Now, to be sure, we also have claims arising out of governing body sanctions. We have summary suspension as a result of an official ejecting a student athlete from a game. We have legal challenges to those types of things. We have defamation claims. We have disabilities and civil rights challenges to the actions of, of sports organization. So one thing that's clear is that the defense of these claims requires knowledge of both case law and codified law specific to sports in most jurisdictions. And the defense also requires a realization that the reach of legislation in civil rights and disabilities and the like doesn't really stop at the stadium gate. Are there any other key cases nationally or locally that will be of particular interest? We are launching cases where the liability of one participant to another is asserted. These claims are mostly dismissed. Some recent criminal prosecutions of athletes raise some interesting issues on the civil side. And bodily injury claims against institutional insureds may not carry the same level of statutory protection, aside from government entity immunity that certain individuals such as volunteers may enjoy. And then we have the ever-present specter of a coach's liability to an inexperienced or frightened student-athlete. In other sports-related issues, we have a couple of recently decided significant interpretations of exculpatory agreement situations right here in New Jersey. We have the very uh, widely known and, and cited New Jersey Supreme Court case from 2006, Hojanowski versus Van State Park, where a parent signed an exculpatory agreement handed to him as a condition of his child skateboarding in the defendant's park. In that case, the court held that public policy prohibits a parent of a minor child from releasing a minor child's potential tort claims arising out of the use of a commercial recreational facility. At the same time, the court held that, that an agreement to arbitrate future tort claims would be enforceable. Then this year, the appellate division of the New Jersey Superior Court dealt with pre-suit waivers for adult participants who sign a waiver as a condition of becoming a paying customer in a fitness facility. Uh, the case was Stelluti versus Casapan Enterprises, we had an adult plaintiff arriving at the health club, a proprietary institution, around 8.30 in the morning, pays $149 for her first month, signs her release. Fifteen minutes later, she's off in pedaling and spinning class. Unfortunately, she didn't get too far before toppling off the stationary bike, and she sustained some serious injuries, allegedly due to the fact that the post on which the saddle of the bike was mounted was improperly anchored. The appellate division upheld the signed waiver in this case, ruling that the document was effective to exculpate the facility from liability from ordinary negligence with respect to commonly used exercise equipment. And in that decision, the court was careful to state that its holding was limited to the run-of-the-mill negligence claim from exercise in classes and or on exercise machines that were commonly used and decided the case basically on those facts. More interesting to me 
is the fact that the court went to great pains to emphasize that the courthouse doors were left open for claimants who successfully navigate the negligence claim waters by proving the presence of what the court called conduct that is more severe than ordinary negligence. And this references, of course, to conduct amounting to either willful acts of a defendant, gross negligence, reckless disregard, in some cases palpably unreasonable. Even more interesting is the appellate division's affirmation that the court need not leave to the jury the question of gross negligence in the absence of a material fact issue that the alleged negligence was over and beyond the textbook definition of ordinary negligence. This is significant to me beyond the health club setting, because the case adds another solid beam of support, at least in New Jersey, for the proposition that a court can toss a case on a dispositive motion if a plaintiff cannot raise a fact issue as to gross negligence or willful conduct or some other enhanced form of negligence. This plays into many of the statutory immunities that we've been talking about. So there have been many no causes in these areas, but for sure the defense team needs to take heed that the fact-sensitive nature of sports claims requires special handling. Okay, thanks very much for joining us today, Al. That was great. My pleasure. That was Alan Goldberger, attorney from the Goldberger and Goldberger Law Firm in Clifton, New Jersey. Special thanks to Brendan Noonan from our communications team and to our producer, Brian Cohen. And thank you all for joining us for the Insurance Law Podcast. To subscribe to this audio program, visit podcast.insuranceattorneysearch.com or go to online directories such as iTunes or Google or Yahoo's podcast directory. And if you have any suggestions for a future topic regarding an insurance law case or issue, please email us at lawpodcast at ambest.com. I'm John Zuba, joined by Brendan Noonan, and now this message. Best's directory of recommended insurance attorneys is used by decision makers at insurance companies responsible for selecting legal counsel and representation. The printed directory is distributed annually to insurance companies, non-insurance companies, third-party administrators, and corporate counsel around the world, and the online edition is accessible throughout the year. Your listing in Best's directory of recommended insurance attorneys is the most effective way to ensure that thousands of potential clients have access to your outstanding credentials. Here's why you should be listed in the number one insurance attorney reference. Your firm's credentials will be listed in our comprehensive reference guide, which is made available to thousands of insurance professionals globally, both in print and online. AMBEST listees are recognized as the most qualified in their field to represent the unique needs of insurance companies. Key decision makers rely on the directory to take the guesswork out of their selection process. They know that only the best are listed, those firms with a proven track record of excellence who are recommended by their insurance industry clients. And remember, one low rate guarantees year long visibility for your firm. We invite you to use our web application process to apply for a listing today. With our reasonable rates and broad exposure, there's no more effective way to get the attention of the insurance industry. For more information about Best's Directory of Recommended Insurance Attorneys, visit www.insuranceattorneysearch.com. 